Section 69 of London Labour and the London Poor, Volume 2, by Henry Mayhew. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gillian Hendry. Sweeping of the Chimneys of Steam Vessels The sweeping of the flues in the boilers of steamboats in the Port of London, and also of land boilers in manufactories, is altogether a distinct process as the machine cannot be used until such time as the parties who are engaged in this business travel a long way through the flues and reach the lower part of the chimney or funnel where it communicates with the boilers and receives the smoke in its passage to the upper air the boilers in the large sea-going steamers are of curious construction in some large steamers there are four separate boilers with three furnaces in each the flues of each boiler uniting in one beneath the funnel Immediately beyond the end of the furnace, which is marked by a little wall, constructed of fire-brick, to prevent the coals and fire from running off the fire-bars, there is a large open space, very high and wide, and which space, after a month's steaming, is generally filled up with soot, somewhat resembling a snowdrift collected in a hollow, were it not for its colour and the fact that it is sometimes in a state of ignition. It is at times so deep that a man sinks to his middle in it, the moment he steps across the fire-bridge. Above his head, and immediately over the end of the furnace, he may perceive an opening in what otherwise would appear to be a solid mass of iron. Up to this opening, which resembles a doorway, the sweeper must clamber the best way he can, and when he succeeds in this, he finds himself in a narrow passage, completely dark, but with so strong a current of air rushing through it, from the furnaces beneath, towards the funnel overhead, that it is with difficulty the wick lamp which he carries in his hand can be kept burning. This passage, between the iron walls on either side, is lofty enough for a tall man to stand upright in, but does not seem at first of any great extent. As he goes on, however, to what appears the end, he finds out his mistake, by coming to a sharp turn which conducts him back again towards the open space in the centre of the boiler, but which is now hid from him by the hollow iron walls which on every side surround him, and within which the waters boil and seethe as the living flames issuing from the furnaces rush and roar through these winding passages. Another sharp turn leads back to the front of the boilers, and so on for seven or eight turns, backwards and forwards, like the windings in a maze, till at the last turn a light suddenly breaks upon him, and looking up he perceives the hollow tube of the funnel, black and ragged with the adhering soot. Here, then, the labour of the sweeper commences. He is armed with a brush and shovel, and laying down his lamp in a space from which he has previously shovelled away the soot, which in many parts of the passage is knee-deep, he brushes down the soot from the sides and roof of the passage, which being done, he shovels it before him into the next winding. This process he repeats till he reaches by degrees the opening where he ascended. Whenever the accumulation of soot is so great that it is likely to block up the passage in the progress of his work, he wades through and shovels as much as he thinks necessary out of the opening into the large space behind the furnaces, then resumes his work, brushing and shovelling by turns, till the flues are cleared. When this is accomplished, he descends, and the fire bars being previously removed, he shovels the soot, now all collected together, over the fire-bridge and into the ash-pit of the furnace. Other persons stand ready in the stoke-hole, armed with long iron rakes, with which they drag out the soot from the ash-pits, 
and others shovel it into sacks, which they make fast to tackle, secured to the upper deck, by which they bows it up out of the engine room, and either discharge it overhead or put it into boats, preparatory to being taken ashore. In this manner, an immense quantity of soot is removed from the boilers of a large foreign-going steamer when she gets into port, after a month or six weeks steaming, having burned in that time perhaps 700 or 800 tons of coal. This work is always performed by the stokers and coal trimmers in the foreign ports, who seldom, if ever, get anything extra for it, although it is no uncommon thing for some of them to be ill for a week after it. In the Port of London, however, the sweeper comes into requisition, who, besides going through the process already described, brings his machine with him, and is thus enabled to cleanse the funnel and to increase the quantity of soot. Some of the master sweepers who have the cleansing of the steamboats in the river and the sweeping of boiler flues are obliged to employ a good many men, and make a great deal of money by their business. The use of anthracite coals, however, and some modern improvements by which air at a certain temperature is admitted to certain parts of the furnace, have in many instances greatly lessened, if they have not altogether prevented, the accumulation of soot by the prevention of smoke, and it seems quite possible, from the statements made by many eminent scientific and practical men, who were examined before a select committee of the House of Commons, presided over by Mr. MacKinnon, in 1843, that by having properly constructed stoves, and a sufficient quantity of pure air properly admitted, not only less fuel might be burned, and produce a greater amount of heat, but soot would cease to accumulate, so that the necessity for sweepers would be no longer felt, and there would be no fear of fires from the ignition of soot in the flues of chimneys. Blacks and smoke, moreover, would take their departure together, and with them the celebrated London fog might also, in a great measure, disappear. The funnels of steamers are generally swept at from eightpence to one shilling sixpence per funnel. The Chelsea steamers are swept by Mr. Albrook of Chelsea, the Continental by Mr. Hawsey of Rosemary Lane, and the Irish and Scotch steamers by Mr. Tuff, who resides in the East London district. Of the Ramoneur Company The patent Ramoneur Company demands perhaps a special notice. It was formed between four and five years ago, and has now four stations, one in Little Harcourt Street, Brynston Square, another in New Road, Sloan Street, a third in Charles Place, Euston Square, and the fourth in William Street, Portland Town. This company has been formed, the prospectus stated, for the purpose of cleansing chimneys with the patent Ramoneur machine, and introducing various other improvements in the business of chimney sweeping. Chimneys are daily swept with this machine where others have failed. The company charged the usual prices, and all the men employed have been brought up as sweepers. The patent machine is thus described. The patent Ramoneur machine consists of four brushes forming a square head, which by means of elastic springs contracts or expands according to the space it moves in. The rods attached to this head or brush are supplied at intervals with a universal spring joint capable of turning even a right angle, and the whole is surmounted with a double revolving ball, having also a universal spring joint, which leads the brush with certainty into every corner, cleansing its root most perfectly. 
the recommendation held out to the public is that the patented chimney machine sweeps cleaner than that in general use and for the reasons assigned and that being constructed with more and better springs it is capable of turning even a right angle which the common machine often leaves unswept this was and is commonly said of the difference between the cleansing of the chimney by a climbing boy and that effected by the present mechanical appliances in general use the boy was better round a corner the patent machines now worked in london are fifteen in number and fifteen men are thus employed each man receives as a weekly wage always in money fourteen shillings besides a suit of clothes yearly the suit consists of a jacket waistcoat and trousers of dark coloured corduroy also a frock or blouse to wear when at work and a cap the whole being worth from thirty-five shillings to forty shillings this payment is about equivalent to that received weekly by the journeyman in the regular or honourable trade for although higher in nominal amount as a weekly remuneration the ramoneur operatives are not allowed any perquisites whatever the resident or manager at each station is also a working chimney-sweeper for the company and at the same rate as the others his advantage being that he lives rent-free at one station which i visited the resident had two comfortable-looking upstairs rooms the stations being all in small streets where he and his wife lived while the cellar which was indeed but the ground floor although somewhat lower than the doorstep was devoted to business purposes the suit being stored there it was boarded off into separate compartments one being at the time quite full of soot all seemed as clean and orderly as possible the rent of those two rooms unfurnished would not be less than four shillings or five shillings a week so that the resident's payment may be put at about fifty pounds a year the patent machine operatives sweep on an average the same number of chimneys each as a master chimney sweeper's men in a good way of business in the ordinary trade of the brisk and slack seasons and the casual trade among the chimney sweepers as among the rubbish carters in the unskilled and the tailors and shoemakers of the skilled trades the sweepers trade also has its slackness and its briskness and from the same cause the difference in the seasons the seasons affecting the sweepers trade are however the natural seasons of the year the recurring summer and winter while the seasons influencing the employment of west end tailors are the arbitrary seasons of fashion the chimney sweepers brisk season is in the winter and especially at what may be in the respective households the periods of the resumption and discontinuance of sitting-room fires the sweepers seasons of briskness and slackness indeed may be said then to be ruled by the thermometer for the temperature causes the increase or diminution of the number of fires and consequently of the production of soot the thermometrical period for fires appears to be from october to the following april both inclusive seven months for during that season the temperature is below fifty degrees i have seen it stated and i believe it is merely a statement of a fact that at one time and even now in some houses it was customary enough for what were called great families to have a fixed day generally michaelmas day september the twenty ninth on which to commence fires in the sitting-rooms and another stated day often may day may the first on which to discontinue them no matter what might be the mean temperature whether too warm for the enjoyment of a fire 
or too cold comfortably to dispense with it. Some wealthy persons now, I am told, such as call themselves economists, while their servants and dependents apply the epithet mean, defer fires until the temperature descends to 42 degrees, or from November to March, both inclusive, a season of only five months. As this question of the range of the thermometer evidently influences the seasons, and therefore the casual labour of the sweepers, I will give the following interesting account of the changing temperature of the metropolis, month by month, the information being derived from the observations of 25 years, 1805 to 1830, by Mr. Luke Howard. The average temperature appears to be January 35.1 degrees, February 38.9 degrees, March 42 degrees, April 47.5 degrees, May 54.9 degrees, June 59.6 degrees, July 63.1 degrees, August 57.1 degrees, September 50.1 degrees, October 42.4 degrees, November 41.9 degrees, December 38.3 degrees. London, I may further state, is two and a half degrees warmer than the country, especially in winter, owing to the shelter of buildings and the multiplicity of the fires in the houses and factories. In the summer, the metropolis is about one and a quarter degrees hotter than the country, owing to want of free air in London, and, to a cause little thought about, the reverberations from narrow streets. In spring and autumn, however, the temperature of both town and country is nearly equal. In London, moreover, the nights are 11.3 degrees colder than the days. In the country, they are 15.4 degrees colder. The extreme ranges of the temperature in the day in the capital are from 20 degrees to 90 degrees. The thermometer has fallen below zero in the night time, but not frequently. In London, the hottest months are 28 degrees warmer than the coldest. The temperature of July, which is the hottest month, being 63.1 and that of January, the coldest month, 35.1 degrees. The month in which there are the greatest number of extremes of heat and cold is January. In February and December, there are, generally speaking, only two such extreme variations, and five in July. Through the other months, however, the extremes are more diffused, and there are only two spring and two autumn months, April and June, September and November, which are not exposed to great differences of temperature. The mean temperature assumes a rate of increase in the different months, which may be represented by a curve nearly equal and parallel with one representing the progress of the sun in declination. Hoar frosts occur when the thermometer is about 39 degrees, and the dense yellow fogs, so peculiar to London, are the most frequent in the months of November, December and January whilst the temperature ranges below 40 degrees. The busy season in the chimney-sweepers' trade commences at the beginning of November and continues up to the month of May. During the remainder of the year, the trade is slack. When the slack season has set in, nearly 100 men are thrown out of employment. These, as well as many of the single-handed masters, resort to other kinds of employment. Some turn costermongers, others tinkers, knife-grinders, and so on and others migrate to the country and get a job at haymaking or any other kind of unskilled labour. Even during the brisk season, there are upwards of 50 men out of employment. Some of these occasionally contrive to get a machine of their own and go about nulling, 
getting a job where they can. Many of the master sweepers employ in the summer months only two journeymen, whereas they require three in the winter months. But this, I am informed, is not the general average, and that it will be more correct to compute it for the whole trade in the proportion of two and a half to two. We may then calculate that one-fourth of the entire trade is displaced during the slack season. This, then, may be taken as the extent of casual labour, with all the sufferings it entails upon improvident and even upon careful working men. A youth casually employed as a sweeper gave the following account. I jobs for the sweep sometimes, sir, as I job for anybody else, and if you have any herons to go and will send me, I'll be uncommon thankful. I have no father and don't remember one, and mother might do well but for the ruin. Note, gin, end note. I calls it ruin out of spite. No, I don't care for it myself. I like beer ten to a farthing to it. She's a ironer, sir, a stunning good one. But I don't like to talk about her, for she might yarn a hatful of browns, thruppin' sixpence a day, and when she has pulled up for a month or more, it's stunning is the difference. I'd rather not be asked more about that. Her great fault against me is as I won't settle. I was one time put to a woman's shoemaker as worked for a warehouse. He was a relation, and I was to go prenticed if it suited, but I couldn't stand his confining ways and I'm certain sure that he only wanted me for some tin mother said she'd spring if all was square. He was bad off, and we lived bad, but he always pretended he was going to be stunning busy. So I hooked it. I'd other places. A pot-boy's was one, but no go. None suited. Well, I can keep myself now by jobbing leastways I can partly, for I have a crib in the corner of mother's room, and my rent's nothing. And when she's all right, I'm all right and she gets better, as I grows bigger, I think. Well, I don't know what I'd like to be. Something like a lamplighter, I think. Well, I look out for sweep jobs, among others, and get them sometimes. I don't know how often. Sometimes three mornings a week for one week, then none for a month. Can anyone live by jobbing that way for the sweeps? No, sir, nor get a quarter of a living. But it's a help. I know some very tidy sweeps now. I'm sure I don't know what they are in the way of trade. Oh yes, now you ask that, I think they're masters. I've had sixpence and half a pint of beer for a morning's work, jobbing-like. I carry soot for them, and I'm lent a sort of jacket or a wrap about me, to keep it off my clothes, though a Jew wouldn't sometimes look at them, and there's worser people nor sweeps. Sometimes I'll get only tuppence or thruppence a day for helping that way, a carrying soot. I don't know nothing about weights or bushels, but I know I found it, blank, heavy. The way, you see, sir, is this here. I meets a sweep as knows me by sight, and he says, Come along, Tom's not at work, and I want you. I have to go it harder, so you carry the suit to our place to save my time, and join me again at number 39. That's just the ticket of it. Well, no, I wouldn't mind being a sweep for myself with my own machine, but I'd rather be a lamplighter. How many help sweeps as I do? I can't at all say. No, I don't know whether it's ten or twenty or a hundred or a thousand. I'm no scholard, sir, that's one thing. But it's very seldom such as me's wanted by them. I can't tell what I get for jobbing for sweeps in a year. I can't guess at it, but it's not so much, I think, as from other kinds of jobbing. Yes, sir, I haven't no doubt that the t'others as jobs for sweeps is in the same way as me. I think I may do as much as any of them that way, quite as much. Of the leaks among the chimney sweepers. The leeks are men who have not been brought up to the trade of chimney sweeping, 
but have adopted it as a speculation, and are so called from their entering green, or inexperienced, into the business. There are, I find, as many as two hundred leaks altogether among the master chimney-sweepers of the metropolis. Of the high masters, the greater portion are leaks, no less than ninety-two out of one hundred and six. I was informed that one of this class was formerly a solicitor, others had been lady shoemakers, and others master builders and bricklayers. Among the lower class sweepers who have taken to this trade, there are dustmen, scavagers, bricklayers' labourers, soldiers, costermongers, tinkers, and various other unskilled labourers. The leaks are regarded with considerable dislike by the class of masters who have been regularly brought up to the business, and served their apprenticeships as climbing boys. These look upon the leaks as men who intrude upon or interfere with their natural and, as they account it, legal rights, declaring that only such as have been brought up to the business should be allowed to establish themselves in it as masters. The chimney-sweepers, as far as I can learn, have never possessed any guild or any special trade regulations, and this opinion of their rights being invaded by the leaks arises most probably from their knowledge that, during the climbing boy's system, every lad so employed, unless the son of his employer, was obliged to be apprenticed. This jealousy towards the leaks does not at all affect the operative sweepers, as some of these leaks are good masters, and among them, perhaps, is to be found the majority of the capitalists of the chimney-sweeping trade, paying the best wages, and finding their journeymen proper food and lodging. Into whatever district I travelled, I heard the operative chimney-sweepers speak highly in favour of some of the leaks. Many of the small masters, however, said, it were a shame for persons who had never known the horrors of climbing to come into the trade and take the bread out of the mouths of those who had undergone the drudgery of the climbing system, and there appears to be some little justice in their remarks. Since the introduction of machines into the chimney-sweeping trade, the masters have increased considerably. In 1816 there were 200 masters, and now there are 350. Before the machines were introduced, the high master sweepers, or great gentlemen, as they were called, numbered only about twenty. Their present number is one hundred and six. The lower class and master men sweepers, on the other hand, were, under the climbing system, from one hundred and fifty to one hundred and eighty in number, but at present there are as many as two hundred and forty-odd. The majority of these fresh hands are leeks, not having been bred to the business. Of the inferior chimney-sweepers, the nullers and queriers. The majority of occupations in all civilised communities are divisible into two distinct classes, the employers and the employed. The employers are necessarily capitalists to a greater or less extent, providing generally the materials and implements necessary for the work, as well as the subsistence of the workmen in the form of wages, and appropriating the proceeds of the labour, while the employed are those who, for the sake of the present subsistence supplied to them, undertake to do the requisite work for the employer. In some few trades, these two functions are found to be united in the same individuals. The class known as peasant proprietors among the cultivators of the soil are at once the labourers and the owners of the land and stock. The cottiers, on the other hand, though renting the land of the proprietor, are, so to speak, peasant farmers, tilling the land for themselves, rather than doing so at wages for some capitalist tenant. 
In handicrafts and manufactures, the same combination of functions is found to prevail. In the clothing districts, the domestic workers are generally their own masters, and so again in many other branches of production. These trading operatives are known by different names in different trades. In the shoe trade, for instance, they are called chamber masters. In the cabinet trade, they are termed garret masters. And in the cooper's trade, the name for them is small trading masters. Some style them mastermen, and others single-handed masters. In all occupations, however, the mastermen are found to be especially injurious to the interests of the entire body of both capitalists and operatives, for owing to the limited extent of their resources, they are obliged to find a market for their work, no matter at what the sacrifice, and hence by their excessive competitions they serve to lower the prices of the trade to the most unprecedented extent. I have as yet met with no occupation in which the existence of a class of mastermen has worked well for the interest of the trade, and I have found many which they have reduced to a state of abject wretchedness. It is a peculiar circumstance, in connection with the mastermen, that they abound only in those callings which require a small amount of capital, and which consequently render it easy for the operative immediately on the least disagreement between him and his employer to pass from the condition of an operative into that of a trading workman. When among the fancy cabinet-makers I had a statement from a gentleman in Aldergate Street, who supplied the material to these men, that a fancy cabinet-maker, the manufacturer of writing-desks, tea-caddies, ladies' work-boxes, and so on, could begin, and did begin, business, on less than three shillings sixpence. A youth had just then bought materials of him for two shillings sixpence, to begin on a small desk, stepping at once out of the trammels of apprenticeship into the character of a masterman. Now this facility to commence business on a man's own account is far greater in the chimney-sweeper's trade than even in the desk-maker's, for the one needs no previous training while the other does. Thus, when other trades, skilled or unskilled, are depressed, when casual labour is with a mass of workpeople more general than constant labour, they usually inquire if they cannot do better at something else, and often resort to such trades as the chimney-sweepers. It is open to all, skilled and unskilled alike. Distress, a desire of change, a vagabond spirit, a hope to better themselves, all tend to swell the ranks of the single-handed master chimney-sweepers, even though these men, from the casualties of the trade in the way of seasons and so on, are often exposed to great privations. There are in all 147 single-handed masters who are thus distributed throughout the metropolis. Southwark, 17, Chelsea, 11, Marylebone, Shoreditch and Whitechapel, each 9, Hackney, Stepney and Lambeth, each 8, St. George's in the East, 7, Rotherith, 6, St. Giles's and East London, each 5, Bethnal Green, Bermondsey, Camberwell and Clapham, each 4, St. Pancras, Islington, Walworth and Greenwich, each three, St. James's, Westminster, Holborn, Clerkenwell, St. Luke's, Poplar, Westminster, West London, City, Wandsworth and Woolwich, each one, in all 147. Thus we perceive that the single-handed masters abound in the suburbs and poorer districts, and it is generally in those parts where the lower rate of wages is paid that these men are found to prevail. Their existence appears to be at once the cause and the consequence of the depreciation of the labour. 
Of the single-handed masters there is a subclass known by the name of nullers or queriers. The nullers were formerly, it is probable, known as nellers. The Saxon word knullen is to knell, to null properly, or sound a bell, and the name nuller accordingly implies the sound of a bell, which has been done, there can be no doubt, by the London chimney-sweepers as well as the dustmen to announce their presence, and as still done in some country parts. One informant has known this to be the practice at the town of Hungerford in Berkshire. The bell was incised between that of a muffin-man and the dustman. The nuller is also styled a querier, a name derived from his making inquiries at the doors of the houses as to whether his services are required or are likely to be soon required, calling even where they know that a regular resident chimney-sweeper is employed. The men go along calling sweep, more especially in the suburbs, and if asked, are you Mr. So-and-so's man, answer in the affirmative, and may then be called in to sweep the chimneys, or instructed to come in the morning. Thus they receive the full charge of an established master, who for the sake of his character and the continuance of his custom must do his work properly, while if such work be done by the nuller, it will be hurriedly and therefore badly done, as all work is, in a general way, when done under false pretenses. Some of the sharpest of these men, I am told, have been reared up as sweepers, but it appears, although it is a matter difficult to ascertain with precision, the majority have been brought up to some generally unskilled calling, as scavengers, costermongers, tinkers, bricklayers' labourers, soldiers, and so on. The nullers, or queriers, are almost all to be found among the lower-class chimney-sweepers. There are, from the best information to be obtained, from 150 to 200 of them. Not only do they scheme for employment in the way I have described, but some of them call at the houses of both rich and poor, boldly stating that they had been sent by Mr. Blank to sweep the flues. I was informed by several of the master sweepers that many of the fires which happen in the metropolis are owing to persons employing these nullers. For, say the high masters, they scamp the work and leave a quantity of soot lodged in the chimney, which in the event of a large fire being kept in the range or grate, ignites. This opinion as to the fires in the chimneys being caused by the scamped work of the nullers must be taken with some allowance. Tradesmen whose established business is thus, as they account it, usurped, are usually angry with the usurpers. There is another evil, so say the regular masters, resulting from the employment of the nullers, the losses accruing to persons employing them, as they take anything they can lay their hands upon. This also is a charge easy to make but not easy to refute, or easy to sift. One master chimney-sweeper told me that when chimneys are swept in rich men's houses, there is almost always some servant in attendance to watch the sweepers. If the rich, I am told, be watchful under these circumstances, the poor are more vigilant. The distribution of the nullers or queriers is as follows. Southwark, 17. Chelsea and St. Giles's, 11 each. Shoreditch and Whitechapel, 10 each. Lambeth, 9. Marylebone, Stepney and Walworth, 8 each. St. George's in the East and Woolwich, 7 each. Islington and Hackney, 6 each. Paddington, St. Pancras, East London, Rotherith and Greenwich, 5 each. Bethnal Green, Bermondsey and Clapham, 4 each. Westminster, St. Martin's, Holborn, St. Luke's, 
West London, Poplar and Camberwell, three each. St. James's, Westminster, Clerkenwell, City of London and Wandsworth, two each. Kensington, one. In all, 183. Like the single-handed men, the nullers abound in the suburbs. I endeavoured to find a nuller who had been a skilled labourer, and was referred to one who, I was told, had been a working plumber, and a good hand at spouts. I found him a doggedly ignorant man. He saw no good, he said, in books or newspapers, and wouldn't say nothing to me, as I told him it would be printed. He wasn't a-going to make a holy show, so I understood him, of his self. Another nuller, to whom I was referred by a master who occasionally employed him as a journeyman, gave me the following account. He was doing just middling, when I saw him, he said, but his look was that of a man who had known privations, and the suit actually seemed to bring out his wrinkles more fully, although he told me he was only between forty and fifty years old. He believed he was not forty-six. "'I was hard brought up, sir,' he said. "'Aye, them as'll read your book, I mean, them readers as is well to do, cannot fancy how hard. Mother was a widow, father was nobody knew where, and poor woman, she was sometimes distracted.' that a daughter she had before her marriage went all wrong. She was a washerwoman, and slaved herself to death. She died in the house, note, workhouse, end note, in Birmingham. I can read and write a little. I was sent to a charity school, and when I was big enough, I was put prentice to a gunsmith at Birmingham. I'm master of the business generally, but my particular part is a gun-lock filer. No, sir, I can't say as ever I liked it, nothing but file, file, all day. I used to wish I was like the free bits of boys that used to beg steel filings off me for their 5th of November fireworks. I never could bear confinement. It's made me look older than I ought, I know. But what can a poor man do? No, I never cared much about drinking. I worked in an iron foundry when I was out of my time. I had a relation that was foreman there. Perhaps it might be that, among all the dust and heat and smoke and stuff, that made me a sweep at last for I was then almost or quite as black as a sweep. Then I came up to London. Aye, that must be more nor twenty years back. Oh, I came up to better myself, but I couldn't get work either at the gunmakers, and I fancy the London masters don't like Birmingham hands, nor at the iron foundries, and the iron foundries is nothing in London to what they is in Staffordshire and Warwickshire. Nothing at all, they may say what they like. Well, sir, I soon got very bad off, my togs was hardly to call togs. One night, and it was a coldish night too, I slept in the park, and was all stiff and shivery next morning. As I was wandering about near the park, I walked up a street near the abbey, King Street I think it is, and there was a picture outside a public house, and a writing of men wanted for the East India Company's service. I went there again in the evening, and there was soldiers smoking and drinking up and down, and I listed at once. I was to have my full bounty when I got to the depot, Southampton, I think they called it. Somehow I began to rue what I'd done. Well, I hardly can tell you why. Oh no, I don't say I was badly used, not at all. But I had heard of snakes and things in the parts I was going to, and I gently hooked it. I was a navvy on different rails after that, but I never was strong enough for that there work, and at last I couldn't get any more work to do. I came back to London. Well, sir, I can't say as you ask why I came to London, instead of Birmingham. I seemed to go natural-like. I could get nothing to do, and, Lord, what I suffered. 
I once fell down in the cut from hunger, and I was lifted into watchhorns. And he said to his men, Give the poor fellow a little drop of brandy, and after that a biscuit. The best things he can have. He saved my life, sir. The people at the bar, they seed it was no humbug, gathered sevenpence halfpenny for me, a penny apiece from some of Maudsley's men, and a halfpenny from a gent that hadn't no other change, and a poor woman as I was going away slipped a couple of trotters into my hand. I slept at a lodging-house then, in Baldwin's Gardens, when I had money, and one day, in Gray's Inn Lane, I picked up an old gent that fell in the middle of the street, and might have been run over. After he'd felt in all his pockets and found he was all right, he gave me five shillings. I knew a sweep, for I sometimes slept in the same house in King Street, Jury Lane, and he was sick and was going to the big house, and he told me all about his machines that six or seven years back, and said if I'd pay two shillings sixpence down and two shillings sixpence a week, if I couldn't pay more, I might have his machine for twenty shillings. I took it at seventeen shillings sixpence and paid him every farthing. That just kept him out of the house, but he died soon after. Yes, I've been a sweep ever since. I've had to shift as well as I could. I don't know that I'm what you call a nuller or a querier. Well, if I'm asked, if I'm anybody's man, I don't like to say no, and I don't like to say yes, so I says nothing if I can help it. Yes, I call at houses to ask if anything's wanted. I've got a job that way sometimes. If they took me for anybody's man, I can't help that. I lodge with another sweep which is better off nor I am, and pay him two shillings ninepence a week for a little stairhead place with a bed in it. I think I clear seven shillings a week, one week with another. But that's the outside. I never go to church or chapel. I've never got into the way of it. Besides, I wouldn't be let in, I suppose, in my togs. I've only myself. I can't say I much like what I'm doing, but what can a poor man do? End of section 69